this is another episode thanks to the power of LinkedIn that Mike and I met. Um, so uh, first off, okay, we this is Mike Reddington, and he's of Inquasive, and we are going to um, let you do your elevator speech, but first we're going to start with the speed round. When I say fraud, what do you think? Thief. <laughs> and thief. That probably, it's just, that's probably not a big jump when you say fraud, I say thief. It's, it's this, I don't know how much further than that you want me to go, but I'll go there. That's good. That's good. Okay. When I say ethics, what do you think of? Personal values. Okay. And um, what is something you have watched on TV or in the movie theater lately that has to do with fraud or unethical behavior that you're like, oh, everyone should watch this or yeah, or read it even? That's a great question. I probably should have warned you that I have a six-year-old son. So anything that I watch on TV or the movies is either for my six-year-old son or a Boston Red Sox game, unfortunately. So I don't know that it would be recently. I'm trying to think. Um, I don't, I honestly don't think I have an answer to that question. I, I'm going to have to fail. So at best I'm two for three, um, but I'm going to have to fail on that one. But yeah, it's all I do okay. is watch stuff with my son at this point. Okay. I should have, I should have asked that first. So, um, yeah, there's just so much I love doing. I have a fraud and pop culture class and there's just yeah. so much stuff coming out all the time. Um, I've had a couple of people tell me to watch the new painkiller and I love Patrick Radden Keefe and he wrote about the empire pain about the Sackler family. I don't think I can watch it. Really? It's just, it, it's just, you know, it's getting great reviews and everything like that, but it's just such a sad, horrific story. And I've read the book. So, yeah. um, I just, yeah. So, okay. So Mike, tell us your story, how you got to where you are. I'm going to keep it super fast. If you want me to to expand anywhere, tell me. But very long story short, I started out as a special education teacher and baseball coach, got peer pressured into trying the financial industry, didn't really like it, went back to school to get a business degree, juggled part-time jobs. One of those jobs ended up being in investigations. I was promoted to management. Would love to tell you that I caught my first thief. Just happened to be standing really close to somebody who was super terrible at stealing. So worked that investigation, worked several more, got sent to my first interview and interrogation training class. And that was the morning that my life changed. It it just made sense to me. That's what I wanted to do. It was my immediate focus. And so I really dedicated myself to that investigative interviewing aspect of my job. And I was fortunate. I was in New England and then in North Jersey and New York City. So there were no shortage of people making regrettable decisions for me to have conversations with. And I eventually earned my certified forensic interviewer designation. And after earning that designation, I was recruited by Wicklander Zalowski and Associates, who many of your listeners are likely familiar with. So I was with them for 10 years. I ran their investigations division. I traveled the world teaching these non-confrontational interview and interrogation techniques to law enforcement, private sector, federal agents, HR. That's how I met my wife. So I was teaching and conducting the investigations at the same time. 
And then after spending all of that time with WZ, who I still love and have a great relationship with all of those guys over there, um, it started dawning on me through conversations I was having with senior leaders in the private sector that a lot of these senior leaders were solving for the same problems in their conversations that we were solving for in our interrogations. So it was really the same things. Conversations were titled different things. So I would teach an interrogation seminar and then a CEO or a senior business leader might take me out to dinner or a beer and start asking me to help with a negotiation or a tough customer or a tough performance management conversation and we'd map it out. Here's how to handle it. Here's why. Here's what to say. Here's how to react. Here's how it's probably going to go. And then a week later, I get a phone call back. How'd you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's the same thing. We're solving for the same problems. So that piqued my interest and turned my interest to business communication research. And the more I dove into research across the spectrum of business communication, the more I realized I really was on the right trail. So the very best leaders and the very best interrogators both capitalize on vision and influence and the cognitive process that interrogation suspects experience when they truthfully commit to saying I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that customers experience when they commit to saying I'll buy it and employees experience when they commit to saying I'll do it. So once I came to those realizations, my nerd took over. And as much as I love investigative interviewing, I'm still on the board for the International Association of Interviewers, uh, had several conversations with WZ and we agreed. They want to focus on being the best at what they do. And I really wanted to branch off into executive education. So I started in Quasive and wrote the discipline listening method. And now I spend most of my time working with CEOs, senior leaders, sales teams, and HR teams, teaching them the skills, perspectives, and techniques necessary to encourage people to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances in the face of consequences. That is so good. And I just had, um, uh, you know, like a DM with a colleague of mine who there's been a big change in her organization or his organization, we'll leave it vague. And um, new management came in and what my colleague said to me is the management came in and said, it's going to be really difficult and really miserable for a while. And can you imagine saying that to a team? Like, what were they thinking? Well, so, clearly they were. Off, <laughs> off camera, I'll tell you maybe where you need to go and do some, uh, you know, fishing yeah. because they clearly need help. I mean, who would say that in this in today's environment that it's going to be miserable and difficult for a while? Unfortunately, I think lots of people will, and they will for a couple of reasons. You and I know that in order to get somebody to confess, to admit, to share information or change their behavior in a way they might not want to do, that they need to there, there are certain requirements for the experience in that interaction for them to change their mind and say or do something they don't want to. If they don't get that experience, they don't change their mind. But I truly believe where we are blessed and lucky is that our careers were built on talking to people who wanted nothing to do with us. So you have to learn and to build your communication styles, your toolbox, your approaches around what other people need and require, as opposed to what you want to do when you have no evidence and people don't want to talk to you anyway. A lot of these business leaders, none of these business leaders essentially have ever had that type of experience. So it's not a far leap for, to think, okay, well, they're taking over a team, good or bad, right or wrong, whatever. There's going to be a lot of changes. Again, good or bad, right or wrong, not for me to judge. 
but change is going to be tough and there's going to be sacrifices made before we get the shit pointed where we want. So what we're going to do is we're going to be upfront and we're going to tell them and we're going to be transparent. We're going to give everybody fair warning. So that's likely the mindset that they're coming from. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say that the intentions probably weren't bad. But the execution, at least in that example, is abysmal because we're communicating from our perspective, from what we want to say or do. We're not communicating from the perspective of what does somebody else need to experience in order to achieve our mutual goals. But again, most people in the business world have never been taught to think that way. Yeah. And then I have another friend. She's a friend and her spouse is a little concerned about his job. And she goes, I'm just gonna have him ask his boss. And I was like, do you really think his boss is gonna give him the right answer? And she's like, well, they've always had a really good relationship. And I was like, there are many reasons where even though they have a good relationship, he may not be allowed to say something. Like, have you actually thought that he may not be, like lawyers may be, controlling that conversation and they may be telling the owners of the business do not give anything up like you know your employees can sense things but you can't you can't confirm or deny <laughs> yeah relationships only go so far especially when you get into that business context or even an investigative context you can have a great relationship with somebody but there's going to be a line eventually where that manager doesn't want to lose his or her job or get in trouble or whatever it is. So at some point I'm going to have to shut it down. And that could be a real line, like you said, based on the requirements of the organization, or it could be a personal comfort line. I'm just not comfortable enough having this conversation with you. So I'm going to give what I believe is an answer that will satisfy you to send you on your merry way. So I don't have to participate in a conversation that's uncomfortable for me. Yeah. Um, so you strike me, you've said this like during this episode so far and pre-episode, curious, curiosity and nerd. And those are like two of my favorite things. So what are some of what are some of the best trainings or resources besides with Glenders Lasky? Yeah. I always WC, it's just easier. Um along the way that maybe you could share with the audience that have kind of been life-changing for you. Yeah. So, I mean, WZ hands down, you know, we could talk for a whole session just about them, but to, to move away from that, you know, Robert Cialdini's work on influence yeah. and persuasion is life-changing, especially when you look at applying it in contextually appropriate manners. I believe you and I initially connected after I had a conversation, posted a conversation with Tim Levine, if I recall that correctly. So if people aren't uh, familiar with Tim Levine's work, his work is fantastic. That's another one. Um, yep. Dr. David Matsumoto over at Humantel is another one that I, I give a lot of credit to. Um, his work with nonverbal communication, Micro, micro expressions, facial expressions of emotion, um, even like uh, not just deception, but even like dangerous demeanor detection and some of the things he has going on over there is great. So that's another one. Um, I've been very fortunate to spend some time with Dr. Geiselman, who was one of the co-authors of the cognitive interview. The cognitive interview, for people who may not be familiar, is a fantastic interview, federally funded, researched, 
for getting victims and witnesses of emotional events to share more truthful and detailed information. There is an investigative component that they built on after, but the initial interview really was for victims and witnesses. I mean, that's an amazing interview technique. Um, so credit to Geiselman as well. Uh, Don Raybon is somebody else yeah. who's been oh, very gracious. Awesome. Yeah, he's been very gracious with his time with me as well in conversations that we've had. Um, so, you know, that's that's a pretty good list right there off the top. But I also would have to give shout outs to people that I've worked with and for who either helped train me along the way or shared stories along the way. And again, this is kind of well, even just even when I worked for WZ and I was training interview and interrogation, there were people who maybe after a seminar, I'd be sitting at the bar with waiting for a flight or something, and they would just tell a story. And by listening to their show, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I, that makes sense. That's a good idea. I can use that. So, I mean, so many little conversations and, and things along the way that have been helpful as well. Well, and you're very good on LinkedIn and putting out good content and you've got a lot of connections. And again, you know, this is like the power of social media. I'm reading a new book that actually Mike Spencer, who's been on the podcast before, um, it's called Trail of the Lost. And it's about three hikers that got lost on the PCT, Pacific Coast Trail, or Pacific Crest, not coast. And it is beyond fascinating. And it's from... The woman who wrote it used to be a um, park ranger. You know, she went to the federal law enforcement training center and it is, as it says, gripping. And so when Mike put it out on LinkedIn, he's like, this is kind of a different sort of investigative thing. And I I already want to buy it and send it to like five people because it's so good. It is so good. And the amount of people the stories, the connections, and social media. So a big part of this book is they have these Facebook groups of people that have gone missing. And it's open source intelligence. And it's fascinating to like, you know, um, so I'm going to reach out to her and see if she'll be on the podcast too. But like just storytelling and these life experiences. And then there's always like in a in a Facebook group, there's a guy who, I don't know if you ever dealt, oh, this is a good question for you. Did you ever deal with someone who thought they were helping, but really they weren't helping? Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. And I've dealt with people that thought they were helping and weren't, like they really had good intentions. And I've also dealt with people that acted like they were helping, but they were trying to help to cover their own tracks and cover up their own involvement, either in this crime or adjacent crimes. So there was a a period in my career where we had like a soft rule where if somebody snitched on somebody else, initially we investigated them both because there was a commonality of people trying to eliminate their competition. I want to get this person caught. I want to get this person out of the way so I don't get caught or I can do this more. So you had a period where you did loss prevention. Correct. And I've interviewed other people on Fraudish that have done loss prevention. And um, people think it's just, you know, it's just a little crime. It's just, you know, yeah, it's a little crime. So what is your perception about that? Because I... I would say I maybe started out my career saying, oh, it's just a little crime. But what is your perception of it now for someone who's actually worked in the field of loss prevention? That's a great question. And just for context, I haven't worked in loss prevention 
for almost 20 years. Not maybe not quite, maybe 17 years, something like that. Um, so I don't know how much has changed since then. That's the only reason why I say it. Um, are there some crimes that loss prevention people would investigate that might just be a little crime? Yeah, sure. I mean, we could come up with those examples, but there are significant cases of fraud, significant cases of embezzlement. There are significant organized retail theft groups that we would investigate. I mean, we're talking six figure cases and beyond that are not uncommon to investigate in that world. And they're Oftentimes tied to drug related cases, human trafficking related cases, arms related cases. So they run in the same groups. So I can see if somebody feels like, well, my experience with what might be loss prevention is I walk into the mall and I see the mall cop. So that must be what loss prevention is. Absolutely not. It, it could have changed again in the last 15, 20 years that I'm not familiar with all the details. But what those investigators are working behind the scenes, some of it sure is catching shoplifters. And some of those shoplifters are the person who makes the impulsive, I'll just take this versus what you see on the news now all the time. These organized retail groups that are taking millions of dollars worth of merchandise a day. But there's also the fraud investigation side that's going on internally, which typically yields the bigger investigations time after time after time. And those are very commonly six figure plus investigations that do tie into all these other crimes as well. So I can understand where people would come for that percept come to that perception because they just see what they see when they go shopping, assuming people still shop in malls. Uh, but it's a significantly different world than that perception. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think people kind of think like, oh, it's you know, someone stealing some, you know, baby formula or maybe some jewelry, like high schoolers, and it's absolutely not. And um so which leads me to my next sort of question is, do you have one or two specific like interviews that just I don't want to say haunt you, but you're just like, wow, that like a case that just I mean, I have a couple that just don't go away. Haunt me at like the type of case it was or I didn't get the confession or there was more to the story. Just that like maybe you no, I don't want to say miss something, but like you could have approached it differently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But um, like a specific case where like, I don't know, maybe you thought they were just a little, little person and then you see down the road like, oh, wow, that wasn't, you know. Yeah. Um, the The one that. So I've got several where I was lucky, where I was interviewing somebody who I thought wasn't the bigger fish, but was clued into it during the interrogation. So I was able to adjust on the fly, but I certainly didn't know going in. Uh, and in fact, one of my earliest interrogations I ever did, my district manager came down and he looked at the case and he decided which one of the two, we're talking almost $100,000 of theft over Thanksgiving weekend. Like, so it was in a pretty short span of time. And uh, so he thought he figured out which one of the two was the leader. So he took that one and left me to do the other one. So, and of course I witnessed his and then he witnessed mine, but it turned out he got it wrong and I had the leader. Yes. So that one, I just like to hold over his head occasionally. There you go, Adam, I haven't forgotten, but that was like more of a luck of the draw kind of thing. But there's one that kind of jumps out where it's not so much in case value, but it was my first lesson in 
there's more to the story focus on the investigation. So very long story short, early in my career, I was investigating an auto center, one of these like tire and oil change and kind of quick service auto centers and uncovered a significant amount of theft and fraud going on within the auto center. Um, so I was working my way up through the hourly people who consistently started implicating management. So now I'm working my way through management. And as a lesson for all the, maybe the newer investigators listening, please don't terminate 14 of 16 employees in one week because corporate ownership is going to be very upset with you when there's nobody to staff their third busiest auto center on the East Coast when you've taken all of their staff away. So that was a lesson I learned the hard way as a young, over-enthusiastic investigator. Um, that got ugly for a day or two after that. But there was one female manager who I very clearly remember interviewing, and she confessed by the way, for most people, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's rare that they confess to absolutely everything they did. They have shut off valves. And our job is to work through as many of those shut off valves as we can until they say that's it no more. And just for easy math, there could be 20 instances of fraud. We knew about six. They admit to 18 and they walk away feeling like they won because there was two they didn't tell us. But we ended up getting an extra 12. So, you know, do the math. Um, but this woman, it was pretty clear to me, probably wasn't giving me close to the whole story. But her whole explanation that she was hiding behind was that um, her son was in Afghanistan, going back to the early 2000s, her son was in Afghanistan and that her husband was a veteran and that her and her husband had been struggling together because of her son being overseas and all of these things. And she got swept up in it. So, okay. I mean, you're still fired, but thank you for telling me. And, and I feel really bad about firing you under those circumstances. I mean, it is what it is. You made your decision. Sorry. So as the investigation goes on, we end up pinpointing the manager who was the, the figurehead of all of this. Fast forward to the unemployment hearings. This woman shows up in the same vehicle as the manager who was the spearhead of all of this. I'm there with the VP of HR. Barbara was her name. So we're sitting there looking out the window. We watch them pull in together and Barbara just goes, hmm. So we do the unemployment hearing. We're walking out. We watch them get in the same car together. And they kind of, when they got in the car, they didn't kiss, but they definitely touched each other. Like the way they com physically comfort each other was more of like you would do that to somebody you were romantically involved with. It's hard to like explain, but the way they kind of reached across and touched each other. Um, and Barbara went, hmm, made the same noise. And I looked at her and I said, what? She's like, I guess that confirms. It. said, confirms what? She said, there's been rumors that they've been cheating on their spouses together for years at the Drury Inn right behind our location, but nobody ever proved it. So now here I am, I buy this line, hook, line and sinker. I buy this story. And I'm sure her son did serve, by the way, I'm not trying to take away from that, but I buy this story, hook, line and sinker to find out that she's been hooking up with the guy who very clearly has been in charge of this the whole time. So that was, that was one that I don't know that it haunts me, but was more of a, Oh, kind of moments. I don't know if that answers your question directly. If I think back to one that haunts me, there was a woman I had to interview in Chicago who was suspected of being part of a fraud group who was of Hungary, who she was from Hungary. She's not Hungarian descent. She grew up in Hungary um, and having, and she was older than me. So clearly I'm speaking to a, a woman who was 
probably 20 years older than me at the time, grew up in a communist country, uh, certainly I'm sure has expectations of law enforcement authority, especially a male. Um, so kind of wish I, honestly, I wish I tapped in one of my teammates for that instead of me, you know, we had some women we probably could have gotten involved that we didn't. So that that's one that I look back and say, ah, you know, could I have used a different approach or brought somebody in to, to be more successful in that case? So that's one. Um, well, so this leads me to a question yeah. that you kind of, so let's start with the age. Mm-hmm. Um, you're younger than me, clearly. <laughs> and uh, do you ever, like, I don't want to say purposely or purposefully um, use age to help? Well, yeah, I like, think I'll purposely use anything. Well, anything. You asked me about <laughs> ethics earlier. I'll purposely use anything ethical to help. Um, I recently had, um, hang on just one second. I recently, thank you for that. I recently had a conversation with um, another female certified forensic interviewer on my podcast. And we talked about the importance of being who the person in front of us needs us to be. Now, there are legal and ethical ways to do that and illegal and unethical ways to do that. So, but focusing on the legal and ethical ways, yes, there are times where if I'm interviewing somebody and I feel like they might be um, not disrespecting me, that's not the right word at all, but almost... um, underestimating. I don't know why that was so hard to think of. And I think they're un- maybe underestimating me because my age, well, now I've got a decision to make. I can use that to my advantage and I can let them underestimate me until it's way too late. And, and that's actually one of my favorite games to play. I've got no problem with that. Um, I might use it to play the old Columbo. Oh, I've got a question approach and, and use that to draw them into the conversation. So there, you told me I'm too young and I used a Columbo example. How do you like that? Uh, <laughs> everyone's listening going, wait a minute, what's Columbo? YouTube it. I'm sure there's something out there. Um, And then, yes, I might sometimes I might call it out or I might use it as an example. So that way people realize that age doesn't have anything to do with experience. But I wouldn't say that in a way where it's like, so, you know, I might look young, but I've been doing this for a long time. Like, that's not going to help you feel any more credible. I would just use an illustration. I would share a story that is illustrative of experience that likely is beyond my apparent age at that point. So those are some different ways that I would handle it. But I would tell you everything from age to positioning and posture to the color shirt that I wear to the location of the room to, you know, all of these little details make a difference. The physical setup of the room. I, and if I have to have a conversation that is that important with somebody and I'm going to be asking them to make a decision that is that difficult to tell the truth, then I want to make sure every little decision I make is intentional and in getting me closer to achieving my goals. Yeah, exactly. Um, So which leads to the next two, gender and culture. And you hit on both of those a little bit. I had a case where I was working with an attorney. She had a client and I said to her, I go, he will never, ever give me anything I need because he's always going to try and use his sex to pull one over because let's just say he was in sex trafficking business. And um, 
And the attorney didn't see it because she was a woman, mm-hmm. but attorney and investigator are different things. So I actually referred a good friend of mine who was male. And like he tried it once the first interview with him to pull something over. And then he realized I'm not going to be able to use my charm to get this guy over. So and in uh, WZ, was there a breakdown of gender of people getting CFIs? I'm sure there probably was. I don't know it, so I don't want to speak to it. I think it's fair to say that investigations is typically a male-dominated industry, so there's going to be more men than women, professional investigators, association members, designation achievers. Uh, But I would be completely speculating if I was to put a number on it because it's been a long time since I've had any access to those numbers. Okay. And what about culture? Like you just talked about this woman from Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just live in such a, our world is so much more diverse than it ever was, which is a great thing. It is. And in both of those scenarios, there's multiple alternatives. So to your point about talking with the attorney, anytime somebody comes to me, investigative context, business context, even personal context, Mike, I have to have X conversation with Y person. What should I say? Hang on. I got three questions. Number one, what's your goal? And we're probably going to unpack that answer because what they give me isn't actually the strategic goal. It's how they're feeling in the moment. So once we have the strategic goal identified, then it's going to be who do we have to achieve it with? And now let's unpack that a little bit and learn as much as we can about the people we have to achieve this goal with. Now, what's the context of the situation? We have to work with that person to achieve this goal. All right. Once we have all of that worked out, now we can start putting the chess pieces on the board to see what gives us the best opportunity to achieve our goal. There were multiple times in my career where I tapped out to a female investigator or I tapped out even to a male investigator that I felt like had a different personality or different approach or a different skill set that might be better for this person that we're going to speak with today because it's not about Mike Reddington getting a confession. Nobody cares about that. It's about getting the truth to protect our client, to protect this organization. That's the most important thing. Then there were situations where I had to talk to people and it could have been gender, it could have been age, it could have been culture. There were a couple of times, especially early in my loss prevention career, you know, people I went out to lunch with turned out to be thieves. And now I got to sit down and talk to them. So now there's techniques in the conversation to use. One of the things that we like to say is take bullets out of guns. So if I know there's something that might make somebody uneasy or they might want to use against me or they're going to try to use this to escape the conversation, I want to use it early where I can use it to my advantage to erase that uneasiness, to take that out of the conversation, to change their perception of the topic or the idea, show them that they can't use it, whatever the situation is. So now I can adjust my approach to compensate for that. When it comes to the cultural differences, much more diversity in our world today, which is a great thing for so many reasons. From an investigative interviewing perspective, just start with showing people respect. Let's just start there. Let's also go to allowing people to save face, not showing judgment. If you can show respect, withhold judgment, and allow people to save face, you're already miles ahead, regardless of somebody's culture. Now it is, especially if you have time to prepare, please do a little bit of research. 
is somebody from a particular area in the world, or they have a particular, or they have a particular faith. If it's obvious and they talk about it, I'm not asking anybody to do anything untoward. Um, or even if, let's just look at the United States. Are they from a certain area of the country? Are they from a certain city, a certain neighborhood, a certain wherever? All of these things play in. So now knowing that. How can I adjust my approach? The distance I keep, the amount of eye contact I take, uh, the uh, maybe illustrations I use or don't use, the words or the humor I use or don't use. Is it a male? Is it a female interviewer? All of these things come into play. There are still going to be situations where we don't have a choice. There are still going to be situations where, yeah, it would be better if somebody who fits this description does the interview. But they're not available. Only I am. So here we go. So in that, I'm going to make the adjustments the best I can. But again, I'm also going to acknowledge some of these things and I will ask questions. If it's a cultural difference, most people appreciate when you ask them questions about where they're from. And you don't have to risk giving up control. This is an extension of showing somebody respect and valuing them as a human being. So it actually helps me build a little bit of rapport while I'm building my understanding. Yeah. And backing up a little bit, you said something really interesting because I've had this experience recently where I was uh, listening to a deposition and I knew where the person I thought wanted to go was to the truth. But in this case, it was to a legal conclusion and the truth didn't really like matter for them where you said like, you know, the CEO or the, the business owner when you said, let's unpack, what is your goal? So my goal in listening to this deposition was to get to the truth, whereas the lawyer's goal was entirely different. And and when it ended, I'm like, well, why didn't you just go this way? And they were like, because this way is where I get to win in court. I don't really care about this way. And I'm like, in my world, it's like, but the truth is over here. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but the legal argument is over here. And so it's been a huge learning experience. And obviously going from like doing the training for WZ to your business now, I think you have to slow down more. I agree. I agree entirely because there are plenty of times where I'll be working with a CEO or a senior leader or someone who's running a sales team and I'll, I'll ask them what's their goal. And number one, they don't really know what their goal is. So we got to really work through that. But to me, my default is get somebody to share information, right? In whatever the situation is, that's what we're looking for. But there are plenty of times where that could be counterproductive. And the opposite is true. There'll be plenty of times where I'll be working with someone like, I just need him to say this. No, you don't. You need him to change his behavior. And if you can get him to change his behavior without forcing him to say that, it's going to be an easier path. So instead of satisfying our own egos, because I got him to tell me he should have known better and it was his mistake and he was wrong. You don't need that. You need him to change his behavior and commit to doing it right moving forward. So if you want to just make your ego feel better, you can go find somebody else to work with you on that. If you're really looking to create a commitment to behavior change, I got you. We'll create a path and we'll get there. So that's a very, very good point that you bring up. Not just what's your tactical short term goal, what will make you feel better right now, but long term strategic. Where do you really need this conversation or these conversations to take you? And then how do we create the path to get there? The end result that really matters. 
Yeah. And people have such short-term thinking these days that slowing it down really like, you know, you open their eyes. For sure. To use, uh, when you talk about slowing it down, the first example that comes to mind gets back to investigations. But years ago, I was called by a company who was frantically trying to close an investigation of two stolen firearms. They've been stolen for over two months, eight weeks at this point. The, an ATF auditing team accidentally discovered the guns were missing, interviewed everybody, got nothing. Local police detectives interviewed everybody, got nothing. So now this company's looking at losing their insurance, their license to sell firearms, all these other things. It's a big mess. So they're on the phone with me, like literally begging me to come in tomorrow. Well, hang on. Let's talk this through. So the more we're talking it through, they number one, we probably need to create a little bit of time to start altering people's perception of what's going on here. And I'm going to be in that city teaching an interrogation class in two weeks. So I can save you all the travel costs and we can put a better plan together. So they were pushing, 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 pushing. And finally, I had to say to the guy who owned this place, can the guns get any more stolen? <laughs> and he, no. No, they can't. Great. Then let's use that to our advantage. Because right now we have a staff full of people. Let's assume only one of them were involved. But you got a staff full of people right now that believe they got away with it and there's no evidence that proves they did it or they already would have been arrested. So now what we need to do is we need to use the intervening time to come up with a game plan to alter their perception. And not only does an extra two weeks save you a pretty substantial stack of money, it also gives us the time to do that. Well, you better be right, blah, 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 whatever. Well, it ends up we were right, and we got a sweet three-page written confession and two people arrested and two guns recovered once we finally got there. But that is, to your point, slow it down. Slow it down. We're, it, if I just jump in my truck right now and start driving fast with no destination, I'm going to run out of gas or hit something. That's not going to help. If I understand where I need to be and why I need to be there, now I can choose the best roads to take, the best time to leave. It's the same with interpersonal communication. The point you just made is hard to, to overemphasize. Slow down. Think it through. What's your goal? How are we going to achieve that goal? It's just it's the prep work is so incredibly important, mm -hmm. like, so incredibly important. For so wrapping up here. Um, OK, excluding TV time with your six year old son. Um, is there something in the past that you've watched that you're like, oh, yeah, that's a good movie or that's a good besides Columbo. Obviously, you're. Columbo. <laughs> so is there something yeah, investigations like, related? Yeah. Do you have a favorite like. Or, or a theft movie that you liked or something along those lines with, that, like, I always, well, I'll always stop and watch The Big Short if I see it on TV. The yeah. other one is I love The Italian Job. Love the, the Italian, the Italian job. job was a good movie. I'll give you that one for sure. And if we're going down the Italian job route, as unrealistic as they are, those old Oceans movies were really entertaining. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, kind of a double answer I don't watch a lot of investigative related television. And even when I was in the thick of my investigations career, I never really watched a lot of it because it's just what I did. So I didn't always want to come home to it and stay involved with it. I was kind of doing other things. And generally I try not to watch a lot of television. Um, and I would also find myself either in the reality shows or even in the television shows thinking, well, that was a stupid 
question. And now I'm, it's like watching your favorite football team fumble on the two yard line. I'm just so angry at these guys that I'm not watching it anymore. Um, but if we get to like movies from an investigation standpoint, I don't know. But when I think about like even the Italian job, almost like those kind of, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but thriller, crime, mystery, the usual suspects is tough to beat. Oh, yeah. That's a great movie. Um, and you know a movie, and this might be more along the lines of a guilty pleasure, but a movie that I really enjoyed, and this is one like if it's on one of these random cable stations in the afternoon, the rest of my afternoon is probably screwed because I'm going to get sucked into it real quick, but is Spy Game. It's an oh, old yeah. Robert Redford, Brad Pitt movie Yeah, where Redford's like this retiring CIA agent and Brad Pitt was his protege and now he's in trouble and he's got to get him out. I probably could spoil the movie because it's 20 years old at least or something like that at this point. But I put that in kind of that same psychological thriller story within a story investigation within an investigation. So I would put that kind of in the same, the same vein. Um, but you, you you hear the like these investigation TV shows or even like the streaming documentaries I typically don't get sucked into those. I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV, but also, especially for the real like popular ones, I'm going to hear all about it anyway. <laughs> so so I don't have to watch it because everyone's going to tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so closing out, um, silly question. What is the last thing you Googled before you got on the podcast? Last thing I Googled before I got on the podcast, jujitsu videos. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. You're a big jujitsu guy? I do train. Yes. I'm, I mean, I'm a hobbyist. I'm not, uh, I mean, I, I compete locally, but I'm not somebody that competes on like the world stage. So I don't, I don't want to take it too far, but yes, I do train and teach and compete a little bit. And we've got some classes coming up this weekend. So I could either a cram in a little bit of work before we started or B check out a few techniques I want to refresh. So that's what I was doing before we, we jumped on today. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming. Thank you, LinkedIn. And, um, <laughs> Timothy LeVarne book. I love that book. It's oh, like, I've got so many bookmarked pages of it. It's so good. Yeah, it's yeah. great. The name of the book is Duped. The one thing that I would say to people is it's a textbook. So yeah, it is. You know, don't buy it thinking you're going to take it to the beach, put your feet up. It's not a light read, but it is fantastic from an educational standpoint, contextual standpoint, understanding like scientifically Talk about exhaustive scientific research and compilation, but scientifically backed approaches to understanding what people's behavior changes likely mean, when, where, why, how to understand it. So, yeah, for sure. That's that book. When I think about textbooks, Tim Levine's Duped and David Matsumoto's Nonverbal Communication are the two. Those are the two to go to for people who are looking to develop a greater understanding at, at that level of human behavior and communication. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They are. I will put those all in the show notes and thank you again. And um, I don't know what you say for like, have a great jujitsu weekend or win or whatever, <laughs> but have a great jujitsu weekend. Thank you very much. And have a wonderful weekend yourself. Hope you get to relax, spend it with your daughter and enjoy the weekend. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, 